is Our American Stories, and we love to do this Days in History, always brought to you by Hillsdale College. And on this day in history, a legend was born, Melvin James Kaminsky, Mel Brooks. And he turned 90 today. He was born in 1926, an American actor, comedian, filmmaker, composer, songwriter, and veteran, as we'll learn soon. And my goodness, his work, American Classics. The Producers may be the funniest movie ever made. Twelve Chairs, Blazing Saddles, Young Frankenstein, Silent Movie, High Anxiety, History of the World, Part 1, Spaceballs, Robin Hood, Men in Tights, and of course the musical adaption of his first film, The Producers, ran on Broadway for six years. And won, well, it won the Tony, it won many Tonys, and it was just superb. And we wanted to start off the telling of this life. We like to always start these things off at the same place when we can, and that's at the beginning. Here's Mel talking with Mark Marin on his podcast about how he and his three brothers were raised by their single mom after their father died of tuberculosis. Well, it was kind of screwed up and wonderful at the same time. Uh, my father passed away. He died. Like, I was on a show once, and, and uh, the announcer who was interviewing me said, so uh, when you were only, you know, when you were only two and a half or so, and then you lost your father. And I took a point. I said, no, 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 no. Uh, he he was dead. He wasn't lost. We knew just where he was. He was in the back. And finally they took him away and they put him in some cemetery. But we, we, we never lost him. We were never that careless with, with, with our father. We cared about him. He died on January 14th, 1929. I'm very good with dates and things. My mother, Kitty, raised four boys. You know, those days diapers. You had to wash them. I'll never forget one, one time I wanted to see... Uh, a movie, and I didn't, I, you know, she gave me three deposit bottles. So that was nine cents. You needed a dime. And, and she went to, she. this is true, she yeah. went next door to Mrs. Miller and borrowed a penny yeah. uh-huh. so I could make the dime. But uh, she was, you know, I don't know if she was typical, but she was a wonderful, loving, caring, one beautiful mother. Indeed. And, you know, this is the... The way of comics, turning something tragic into something humorous. His father died of kidney disease at 34 when Brooks was two years old. He has said of his father's death, quote, There's an outrage there. I may be angry at God or at the world for that. And I'm sure a lot of my comedy is based in some way on anger and hostility. And by the way, he was born in Brooklyn and... That's that borough in New York that produces so many comic greats. And his father's family were Jews from Danzig, Germany. His mother's family were Jews from Kiev. And this will become important as we learn a little bit more about how the producers got made. And from that same podcast, Mel here talks to Mark Marin about how much he could buy back in those days when he was a kid with a mere 50 cents. My brother Lenny used to give me a half a buck on Saturday night. I mean, that was a, a, a veritable fortune, literally. I mean, a half a buck. You could go, you could start in a delicatessen, 
You could have two frankfurters with sauerkraut. You could have it with beans and with with French fries, with a, with a Dr. Brown cream or celery. That okay, whole that? thing was about a, about a quarter. Then you could go to the movies, and yeah. I think that was about twenty cents, you know, or or fifteen cents. I don't know. The movie wasn't wasn't much. And after it, you had a dime left for the ice cream parlor, half a buck, <laughs> a whole night out. I mean, it was it was deli- I was deliriously happy. From an American Masters documentary, here is Mel talking about how his mother wanted him to become an aviation mechanic. I was 14. My mother found out about Heron High School of Aviation Trades, which is in Brooklyn, and taught you to be in, in, in their four-year high school program an aviation mechanic. And I said, well, okay, sounds good, you know? We'll see how it goes, but at least I'll, my mother knew a trade is something. You'll have a job. You'll be able to marry and eat and have a family. My brother Irving gets home. It's about 11 o'clock at night from Brooklyn College. And he said, well, what is that? What, what is this form? And my mother explained. He said, well, your mind and your heart is in the right place, Mom. But this kid is special. He's really bright. And I think... We've got to give him a chance to really go somewhere. And he's, as he's tearing it up, he says, he's not going to be an aviation mechanic. My mother said, all right, I tried, you know. And, and to this day, I think Irving made a mistake, and I made a mistake, because had I gone to Harron High School of Aviation Trades and become a, an aviation mechanic, I'd be retired now with a very good pension. I'd be relaxed. My feet would be up. A lovely neighbor, a nice guy, you know. Hey, Saul, how you doing, Al? Going good. Watch the hedges. Keep them even. Keep them even. Here's Mel talking to Conan O'Brien about how he knew this kid from Brooklyn that he was headed straight to the garment center because that's where everybody that he grew up with ended up working in New York City. I knew I was headed for the garment center. I just knew. I was like... It was destiny. Everybody in those tenements, it was, it, was, it, was, it was like a sci-fi movie. We were all robotically destined to end up on 7th Avenue, either cutters or shipping clerks or sometimes salesmen. But we were all heading for the, for the garment center, which was the, the real industry in New York. Well, when we come back... There's a little detour in Mel Kaminsky's life, Mel Brooks. A little something called World War II. And then thereafter, how he ends up landing, not in the garment district, but on Broadway in New York and then Los Angeles to make some of the funniest movies ever made. This is Lee Habib. This is our American story. This day in history, Mel Brooks was born. our American stories, the life 
of Mel Brooks, celebrated here on this day in history. Mel Brooks was born Melvin James Kaminsky in 1926. He turns 90 today. And we learn in Brooks's career that that detour he took was a tough one. And he spent a year after graduating from high school at Brooklyn College as a psychology major before being drafted into the Army. He attended the Army Specialized Training Program conducted at the Virginia Military Institute, although not actually as a VMI cadet, and then served in the United States Army Army as a corporal in the 1104 Engineer Combat Battalion, 78th Infantry Division, Diffusing Landmines. Ouch. That's about as rough as it gets. Let's take a listen to Mike Rowe, who did a really neat story and performed this on his podcast, celebrating Brooks's life. Corporal Kaminsky was precariously perched atop a makeshift utility pole 40 feet above the frozen ground. In the dim light of a crescent moon, he squinted to complete his task and tried not to lose his battle with gravity. As a member of the 1104th Engineer Combat Group, Kaminsky was used to such work. What he was not used to was doing it so close to the enemy. You see, this particular pole to which this particular 18-year-old corporal clung was planted in Belgium, specifically in the Ardan Forest. And just through the trees, a big chunk of the German army was regrouping after their enormous offensive that would be remembered forever as the Battle of the Bulge. They were so close, Kaminsky could smell them. An odorous stew of bratwurst, gasoline, and boiled cabbage filled his nostrils. You could hear them, too. They'd been playing propaganda recordings all night long. An unholy mix of the German national anthem, the latest ravings of the mad Fuhrer, and the sweet English voice of Axis Sally urging our boys to lay down their guns and surrender. As he twisted the last wire around the screw that would carry the current to a slightly different broadcast, he heard a harsh whisper from the sentry below him. This isn't funny, Kaminsky. This made the young corporal smile. If there was one thing he'd learned growing up on the mean streets of Brooklyn, it was this. Whenever anyone said, that's not funny, it was almost certain to be hilarious. Kaminsky shimmied down the pole, took one last glance up at the enormous loudspeaker he'd just installed, and giggled. The sentry shook his head as Kaminsky scurried back to battalion command. Along the way, he stepped around numerous foxholes filled with exhausted and freezing G.I.s. Their spirits needed a lift, and by golly, he was just the soldier to do the job. Kaminsky searched through a small box of vinyl 78s, looking for just the perfect selection for an occasion such as this. His eyes settled on a classic, and Kaminsky giggled once again. A switch was flipped. A dial was cranked, and a wall of sound erupted from Kaminsky's loudspeaker that echoed through the frozen forest. In an instant, the racist rantings of Adolf Hitler were drowned out by the unmistakable refrain known to millions. Toot, toot, tootsie, goodbye. Toot, toot, tootsie, don't cry. For several glorious and confusing minutes, the only thing the soldiers on either side could hear were the dulcet tones of the one and only Al Jolson, who, like Corporal Kaminsky, just happened to be very, very Jewish. 
Kaminsky watched as the war-torn boys of the 78th poked their heads out of their foxholes like curious prairie dogs. The absurdity of the situation took a few moments to process, but soon the irony washed over the troops and the laughter set in. Nazis, in the middle of a war, driven by an insane hatred of Jews, were now being serenaded by one. Now that was funny. I guess if you can make people laugh on the battlefields of Europe, you can make people laugh pretty much anywhere. And that had always been Corporal Kaminsky's goal. And again, that Corporal Kaminsky would soon change his name after the war as he started to work the circuit in the Borscht Belt resorts and nightclubs in the Catskill Mountains north of New York City as a drummer by all, by all accounts, trained by Buddy Rich, by the way, who grew up in his neighborhood, and pianist. And it was, again, at this time that he changed his name to Mel Brooks. Here is Mel talking about why and how he got into show business and that it was really based on a pretty gigantic mistake. It was kind of like a giant mistake, you know, that happened. We had in our neighborhood... We had a celebrity. We had an actor. His name was Don Appel. Don was in in a play on Broadway called Native Son with a great actor called Canada Lee, who was a and it was a really it was a it was a beautiful play. And Don was one of the stars. Don Appel of Native Son on Broadway, and he'd come home every night, and a few of us, two or three of us, would stay up and wait for him. He didn't get. There till 11.30 till, you know, sometimes midnight. And we'd be in Mr. Shanus, that was the grocery man's milk box, waiting for him because we knew he'd show up at the milk box to tell us what happened that night. If somebody died in the audience or coughed or whatever. Yeah. And he'd regale us with stories of, of, of makeup and backstage, tell you everything. And we were just, we were thrilled. And then, and there were only two of us, Joe, Joey, Joe Gavanter and me, and we decided that's where we're going. We're going backstage. We're going to be, we're going to put on makeup. We're going to, we're going to entertain. We're going to entertain. And that was it. He comes back from the war, as I said. He goes up to the Catskills and he starts doing his thing. After a regular comic at one of the nightclubs there was too sick to perform one night, Brooks started working as a stand-up, telling jokes and doing movie star impressions. He also began acting in summer stock in Red Bank, New Jersey. He also dabbled in radio. He eventually worked his way up to comically aggressive job of Tumblr, master entertainer at the legendary Grossinger's, one of the Borscht Belt's most famous resorts. By the way, a lot of New York producers and those types went up to vacation there, and so everybody wanted that gig at Grossinger's because maybe they'd be discovered. And Brooks found more rewarding work soon behind the scenes, becoming a comedy writer for television. In 1949, he got his big break. His friend Sid Caesar hired Brooks to write jokes for the NBC series The Admiral Broadway Review, paying him a monstrous $50 a week. In 1950, Caesar created the revolutionary variety comedy series Your Show of Shows and hired Brooks as a writer along with these writers, Neil Simon. Did anyone write bigger hit Broadway plays? Danny Simon, Mel Tolkien, 
And he met a lifelong, a lifelong partner, Carl Reiner, in that writer's room. Here's Mel Brooks talking to Conan O'Brien about Sid Caesar's great talent. He said, at home, parce que vous avez dit avec les autres choses. And the, the waiter knew that he, there was some French there, but he, <laughs> but he couldn't make any sense out of it. You know, right, he, right. He kept saying, uh, en anglais, and took, uh, took English, uh, I take your order, and Sid never stopped. Sid was relentless. And that was Sid Caesar doing his gibberish. And he would just pretend to talk in a foreign language, but he was making it up. And Brooks learned so much from Sid, a giant in the business. Indeed, he came on Conan that night because Conan was one of the rare new young talents who paid homage properly to Sid Caesar. Mel Brooks was so taken by that that he came on soon thereafter to thank Conan for treating this elder statesman of comedy with the proper respect and reverence he was he deserved and earned. And when we come back, we're going to dig into that partnership that we talked about before. Carl Reiner, Mel Brooks, and the 2,000-year-old man. And then after that, the producers. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, the life of Mel Brooks, celebrated this day in history in 1926, 90 years ago. Mel Brooks was born. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Story, celebrating the life of Mel Kaminsky. Mel Brooks, that is. Changed his name when he went to the Catskills. And we're playing that music from Get Smart, because this is a brainchild of Mel Brooks and Buck Henry. And they wanted to create a show about a bumbling James Bond. As Brooks explained to a TV guide... I was sick of looking at all those nice, sensible situation comedies. They were such distortions of life. I wanted to do a crazy, zany, unreal comic strip kind of thing about something besides a family. No one had ever done a show about an idiot before. I wanted to be the first. And it was truly a show about an idiot. And that's the thing about Brooks. As brilliant as he was, he loved the zany. And the zany really began for him 
when he started playing around doing improvisational comedy at people's homes around a 2,000-year-old man. Carl Reiner played the straight man, Mel Brooks the 2,000-year-old man. And they kept doing it at first for friends, but by the late 50s, it had gained a cult status in New York City. Indeed, Kenneth Tynan, one of the prominent critics then, saw the comedy duo perform it at a party in 1959, and he actually wrote a review. That's how good it was. And then again, he did it and performed it, and then they performed it some more on the Steve Allen show, and then they recorded it, and it just sold. And then they recorded another and another, and it ultimately became a 1975 animated TV special. But enough about the 2,000-year-old man. Let's take a listen. About four days ago, a plane landed at Idlewild Airport. The plane came from the Middle East, bearing a man who claims to be 2,000 years old. He spent the last six days at the Mayo Clinic. <laughs> Sir, is it true that you are 2,000 years old? Oh, boy. <laughs> oh, yes. You are too... It's hard to believe, sir, because in the history of man, nobody's ever lived more than 167 years as the man from Peru would claim to be. But you claim to be 2,000. Yes, I'll be... I'm not yet. I'll be... I'll be... Uh, 2000 October 16th. <laughs> yes. You will be 2000. Where, when were you born? We uh, didn't have uh, formal uh, years and names in, in writing. We didn't know. I see. And what? Nobody kept time then. See, we didn't know, we didn't write, we just sat around, uh, we pointed in the sky, and we said, whoa, hot boy, you know? That's all you said? We didn't even know it was the sun, we thought. <laughs> you mean you really didn't know we anything? We didn't know anything. We were so dumb and stupid. <laughs> Sir. We didn't know who was a lady. <laughs> but they were. The, they was with us. We but didn't know who they were. <laughs> We didn't know who was the you, ladies and who was fellas. You, you thought know? it was they were just different type of yes, fellas. Yes, stronger or smaller or yes, softer. The softer ones, I think, were ladies all the time. <laughs> well, what, what, how did you find out that they cute, were ladies? A cute, fat guy could, he could have mistaken him for a lady, you know? Soft and cute. Who was the person who discovered the female? Bernie. <laughs> who was Bernie? Bernie, one of the first leaders of, the, of our group. And he discovered the female. Yes. How did that happen? He How did said, it come hey, to pass? There's, there's ladies here. <laughs> I'm very interested to find out how Bernie discovered the woman. Well, he... How did he, it come to pass? He, one morning, he got up smiling. <laughs> so, he said, I think there's ladies here. <laughs> so I said, what do you mean, you know? So he said, of course, in the night... I was thrilled and delighted, see? <laughs> so then he went into such a story that uh, it's hundreds of years later, I still blushed. Sir, uh, could you give us the secret of your longevity? Well, the major thing, the major thing is that I never, ever touch fried food. <laughs> I, I don't eat it, I wouldn't look at it, and I don't touch it. And, and they uh, never run for a bus, there'll always be another. Even if, even if you're late from work, you know, I never run for a bus, I never ran, I just strolled jaunty jolly walking to the bus stop, you know? Yeah, well, there were no buses in the time no, of uh, in my No, in my time, I mean, I... Uh, what was the means of transportation then? 
Mostly fear. <laughs> fear transported you? Fear, yes. You would see an animal would, would growl, you would go two miles in a minute. But I suppose you had... Fear would be the main propulsion. Yes, but I think most people are interested in living a long and fruitful life as yes. you have. You mentioned... Fruit is good, too. You mentioned fruit. Yeah. Fruit it... kept me going for 140 years once when I was, I was on a very strict diet, mainly nectarines. I love that fruit. It's a half a peach, half a plum, but it's a hell of a fruit. I love it. Not too cold, not too hot, you know, just nice. What has been Even your... our rotten one is good. That's how much I love them. I'd rather eat a rotten nectarine and a fine plum. What do you think of that? I can understand that. Yes, that's how much I love them. Yes, I can understand that. Yes, yes. Sir? Some good things. Sir, what yes. did you do for a living? Well, many years ago, thousands of years ago, there was no heavy industry. We know that. The most uh, things that we manufactured or we made, the most things that we ever made was uh, we would make take a piece of wood, see, and rub it, and, and rub it, and clean it, and look at it, and hit earth with it, and hit a tree with it. For what purpose? Just to keep busy. There was nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Just to keep busy. And it goes on and on and on. And this was improvised and improvised over and over and over again. And this began this incredible career. Again, Mel Brooks and Carl Reiner's 2,000-year-old man, and we're going to pick up a little bit more where we left off. And then when we come back in the next segment, we are going to dig into the producers, how it got made, how it almost never got seen. And then we'll close with Martin Scorsese's tribute at the American Film Institute's Lifetime Achievement Award. Uh, and Scorsese's words were just spectacular. But let's go back to the 2,000-year-old man. Nothing to do. We had no jobs, don't you? What see? other jobs were there? There must have been something else besides hitting a tree with a no, piece of that, stick. That, well, hitting a tree with a piece of stick was already a good job. <laughs> you couldn't get that job, you know. What job? Mainly, was sitting and looking in the sky was a big job, and another job was watching each other was one thing. <laughs> that was light work, looking at each other. And what uh, language did you speak at that? They spoke. Uh, uh, rock, basic rock. Basic rock. Yeah. That was before Hebrew. Yeah, but it was 200 years before Hebrew. It was the rock language or rock talk. Could you give us an example yes. of that? Uh, hey, uh, put that, don't throw that rock at me. Uh, put that rock <laughs> hey, uh, what are you doing with the rock there? Call a policeman, for God's I sake. See. Put that rock away. I see. That was the rock. Now, do you remember, do you remember your Hebrew, sir? Yes, I I, Would you, uh, I think I remember it fluently. Because I understand the modern Hebrew is different from the... Uh, yes, archaic. it differs in some of the phonetic alliterations and patterns. Yes. yes. Can, can we hear an example of the ancient Hebrew? Uh, the very ancient Hebrew is... Uh, oh, hi there. Hello. <laughs> Hello there, how are you? I'm all right, how are you? That's English. Oh, wait, wait. Uh, Do you remember any Hebrew? Very little, I think. <laughs> I don't think I remember it. I must have forgot a great deal of it. <laughs> I think you forgot it all, sir. Maybe all, yes. yes. Maybe all. Yes. It's thousands of years since I needed it. Thousands of years since he needed it. This is Lee Habib, Mel Brooks, and Carl Reiner, the 2,000-year-old man. Just go up to YouTube and click that and watch the whole thing because it's also watching Mel Brooks. That's so remarkable. What he did with his body, what he did with his face. You know, Robin Williams relied on Jonathan Winters' act. But let me tell you, there's a lot of Mel Brooks in him, too. When we come back, 
more on the life of Mel Brooks. This day in history, he was born in 1926. And that was from The Elephant Man, which Mel Brooks produced and gave David Lynch the nod as director. A stunning piece of work and showed a serious side to Brooks. And, e- and even his seminal work had a serious side. And I think that's the producers. I think you can't not well pick any other movie. And it was serious because he was satirizing a monster who had decimated so many of his people. And who else but to take apart Hitler piece by piece in a comedy than Mel Brooks. And in a scene from the producers, actors Gene Wilde and Zero Mostel are discussing what would become the premise of the film itself. You can make more with a flop than you can with a hit. It's absolutely amazing. But under the right circumstances, a producer could make more money with a flop than he could with a hit. Hmm. Yes, it's quite possible. If he were certain that the show would fail, a man could make a fortune. Yes? Yes, what? What you were saying. Keep talking. What was I saying? You were saying that under the right circumstances, a producer could make more money with a flop than he could with a hit. Yes, it's quite possible. You keep saying that, but you don't tell me how. How can a producer make more money with a flop than he could with a hit? Well, it's simply a matter of creative accounting. Let's assume, just for the moment, that you are a dishonest man. Assume away. It's very easy. You simply raise more money than you really need. What do you mean? Well, you did it yourself, only you did it on a very small scale. What did I do? You raised $2,000 more than you needed to produce your last play. So what? What did it get me? I'm wearing a cardboard belt. Well, that's where you made your mistake. You didn't go all the way. You see, if you were really a bold criminal, you could have raised a million. But the play cost me only $60,000 to produce. And how long did it run? One night. You see? Do you see what I'm trying to tell you? You could have raised a million dollars, put on a $60,000 flop, and kept the rest. But what if the play was a hit? Well, then you'd go to jail. See, <laughs> once the play's a hit, you have to pay off all the backers. And with so many backers, there could never be enough profits to go around. Get it? Uh-huh. 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 So in order for the scheme to work, we'd have to find a surefire flop. What scheme? What scheme? Your scheme, you bloody little genius. I meant no scheme. 
I merely posed a little academic accounting theory. It was just a thought. Bloom, worlds are turned on such thoughts. <laughs> so they set out to find the worst actors to make sure their horrible play, written by a Nazi, is a <laughs> failure. In this scene, they're searching for the worst possible actor to play Hitler. And the, the name of this young actor is Lorenzo Sendeboy. And they take the show to Broadway. And in one of the most hilarious scenes ever in movies from the producers is when the cast of the play, with a horrified audience watching, <laughs> starts singing Springtime for Hitler. <laughs> audience is silent <laughs> and their open. mouths are open it's classic <laughs> and here in this scene the producers hide from their audience usually it's a lanes across the street or some other bistro in the in the theater district and they're hiding from their audience during intermission because they're embarrassed by what they think was a horrible play to their surprise well the audience it turns out they loved it it's intermission your faces, they'll tear us to pieces. Two whiskey sours, please. Well, so far, that's about one of the funniest things I've ever seen on Broadway. I never laughed so much in my life. Absolutely hysterical. I thought I'd slit my sides. Take it easy. I don't panic. 
There are a lot of plays on this street. They aren't necessarily talking about springtime for Hitler. <laughs> Would you ever believe in a million years you'd ever love a show called Springtime for Hitler? <laughs> hey, come on, let's get back. If the second act is anything like the first, this will run for five years. Springtime for Hitler and Germany. <laughs> According to Mel Brooks, the producers was not well received by the powers that be in Hollywood and was thus not given proper distribution. As a result, the film itself was an immediate flop. Here, Mel Brooks talks about how the night after the premiere was the worst night of his life. When I got back that night, my wife said, you're white, what happened? And I explained slowly. I couldn't sleep, we stayed up reading to each other all night from different books just to get through the night. It's the worst night of my life. The film was put on the shelf and forgotten for several years until actor, writer, director, and all-around wonderkind Paul Mazursky was hosting Peter Sellers at a dinner party at his house where they were supposed to watch a Fellini film. When the time came to watch the movie, it was missing. So they watched a copy of The Producers instead. It was this accident that gave The Producers a new life. Here is Paul Mazursky with that story. Peter finally says, well, let's see the Vitelloni. And he says, Charles, we're ready for the Vitelloni. And he hits the squawk box. And there's no answer for about 10 seconds. And then you hear Adekov says, ah, uh, Mr. Sellers, ah, uh, I ain't got no Vitelloni. What's a Vitelloni? Vitelloni, Fellini's Vitelloni. And I suddenly realized, I didn't bring the film. I thought they would have ordered it. He says, just no, what, what's happened? And my wife said, does anybody want any spaghetti? And she picks up the cup, he says, I don't want any spaghetti and I don't want any vitelloni, ever, ever, ever. I don't want it, ever. And just then you hear the voice come out of the squawk box saying, I ain't got no vitelloni, but I got, I got some movie here. I don't think I'm supposed to show it, but who's gonna know? It's something by this guy, Mel Brooks, it's called The Producers. Put it on, as long as it's not Vitelloni. Don't care what it is. Put it on. And the movie goes on. And as the movie unfolds in the first five or six minutes, we're on the floor. It's hilarious. Zero Mustel. Gene Wilder on the floor. Well, the movie ends, and it's a masterpiece. The lights come up. Peter's in the back. He opens a little book that he has, and he starts dialing the phone. It's midnight in L.A. Hello? Hello, Joe. I know, it's three o'clock in the morning. I'm Mrs. Peter Sellers. I've just seen the greatest film ever, ever, ever. It's even better than Fellini's Vitelloni. It's a film called The Producers, and you're the producer. It's by Mel Brooks. It's a work of genius, Joe, and I'm taking on full-page ad in both trades tomorrow. Sorry to have worked with you. Thank you. And here's Mel talking about the newfound success that almost never saw the light of day. Little by little, I don't know what happened. Sidney Glazer was great. He demanded that the movie be released as per contract. So it had to be released at least in one prime theater in one major city. So in New York, Joe Levine had a deal with the Fine Arts Theater on 58th Street. I believe it was in February. And lo and behold, there was a line around the block. Somehow the word had gotten out that this was a very special movie and that New Yorkers would like it. And it was a hit. 
and it ran for one year at the Fine Arts Theater. And it ran for close to a year at 9000 Sunset Boulevard. And it ran in Chicago. Those are the three cities. It was an instant hit and kept running. And because of that hit, we got to experience Blazing Saddles, Young Frankenstein, Silent Movie, High Anxiety, History of the World Part 1, Spaceballs, Robin Hood, Men in Tights, and of course, the theatrical version of The Producers. This day in history, Mel Brooks was born in 1926. This is Our American Stories. is Our American Stories, and it's time for our American Dreamers series, sponsored by the great folks at the Job Creators Network, who are hard at work helping small business owners fight public policy battles so they can grow their small businesses into bigger ones. And that's the Job Creators Network, presenting our American Dreamers series, as always. And today, our own Alex Cortez brings us the story of Tom Sedeca the CEO of Precision Payroll of America, and the guy who happens to do our payroll. Both my parents are from Lithuania. Lithuania is one of the Baltic states, and the Baltic states, of course, got caught up in the crossfire between Germany and then Russia. And ultimately, Russia took it over and made it a Soviet satellite. And, of course, when the communists were taken over, they targeted certain people that should not, you know, continue to be in that country or exist. So one of the targets, my mom's brother was a uh, freedom fighter. What they would do is they would try and disrupt the communication lines that were set up. If there's supply trains coming in, they would try and take down the railways, intercept communications, oftentimes also attack and take on garrisons of Russians and to fight them, to battle them. They would have resisted in every way possible, but they were sort of the, the, the military resistance of what was left because they, obviously after the war the army was decimated. And they would hide out in hills and forests and then plan their strikes, you know, strike and then return back to hiding. And of course you had people in communities feeding them and helping them out. and. Um, and that went on a long, long time, but really to no avail. I mean, Latvia, Estonia, I mean, Poland, you think all those nations, they all had people, you know, resisting, but and the Soviets came in in a, in a big, big force. You know, they had, they had little, little battles. They, they would win little battles, but they, you know, on a, on a glide path, though, of losing the war. And the freedom fighters, when they were discovered what their identities were, the Russians would go after and wipe out the entire family and go outside the nuclear family and just take them out. Either uh, executions, um, exportation to Siberia, whatnot. And at one point he did get cornered in the woods, in the forest, and his team ended up taking their own lives and destroying all, all of their identities as best they can. And yet they still discovered who they were so that so the family had to flee. 
dad's side, my grandmother owned like three or four restaurants and they were actually pretty well to do. And what's interesting was that my grandmother was the entrepreneur and my grandfather was uh, hardworking, mechanically inclined. So they had a beautiful apartment in the main city and about an 800 acre plantation in the country. And my dad grew up in the country with a seamstress, a tutor, I mean, a completely different life. Well, and of course, anybody with any type of wealth education also had to go. You know, anybody with any, anybody with any type of positive influence, so they had to run. And they ended up, both families ended up in displaced person camps in Germany and Bavaria. And then after about four and a half, five years, they came to the States. My mom's family came in through Ellis Island and my dad's family came in through New Orleans. And back in those days, you had to be sponsored, checked for health, because they were turning people away that had any type of disease, and be sort of approved or, or given knowledge that they're going to work and contribute to society. And both of his parents' families ended up in a place that some call Little Lithuania, which is the largest Lithuanian community outside of Lithuania and is more commonly referred to as Chicago. I was raised speaking the language at home, understanding the history. We would have Saturday school that we would have at home that my mom would teach, and it was all about Lithuanian history, the language. Boy, we had to turn in writing assignments, we had to do reading assignments, get a chapter from a book, from a history book. It was pretty formal, and as a kid, it was like, are you kidding me? I could be out playing football or baseball, and I, in fact, I get to sit here and tell my friends, I got Lithuanian school. I'm like, what? But as you look back now, it's like, wow, I'm glad we did that. You know, I'm glad we did that. Growing up, learning about all the different stories of the harrowing escapes, my mom and grandma were dive-bombed when they were hanging laundry. Both my grandmother and my mom saw the face of the bomber in the plane. And they just, they made like an eye contact with them and they just thought, God help us. And there was just like a big crater uh, where they were standing. They were amazed they were alive and their laundry was just everywhere. Incredible stories like that of the family coming over. And so growing up, we were instilled with a an appreciation for freedom, an appreciation for faith, an appreciation for the United States. History has so much value. One, as a, as a process to understand of where we are today, but also to avoid catastrophes that occurred in the past and understand how those occurred. It's another way of saying if you forget history, you're deemed to repeat it. One of the things that I started doing was when my daughter was born and when she hit her sort of cognitive years at about three or four, every 4th of July I would read the Declaration of Independence and the, and the Constitution. And that helps us not only understand but really appreciate because America is a divine providence. Yeah, very likely. Very likely indeed, and we're listening to Tom Sedeka, 
and his story, an American dreamer's story for sure, here on Our American Stories. We continue after these commercial messages. American stories, and we return to the story of Tom Sedeka, the son of Lithuanian immigrants and the CEO of Precision Payroll of America, and the guy who happens to do Our American Stories payroll. Lithuania was the last European country to accept Christianity. Early on, one of the kings, in wanting to get his approval from Rome, said, okay, I'll, you know, I'll become a Catholic. I'll become a Christian. And that was somewhere around the year 1000. Prior to that, they were pagan. Let's see, oak trees was a big god or presence in their lives, fire. And what's interesting is that in Lithuania, outside of this town called Shaule, there is what's known the Hill of Crosses. Probably, Eight or 900 AD, some folks who were following the Christian faith, when their people went to fight at wars and they were lost, the community would plant little crosses on this hill. And over time, the crosses would build, would build, would build. And there were probably, come 1945, 1500 crosses on this hill. And the Russians also found out that it was a symbol, not only of faith, but of honor for the fallen, and they weren't too happy with that. The communists would close churches, get rid of Bibles, because the higher power is the state. So they would get rid of the crosses. But to their amazement and frustration, the crosses would return, a different set of crosses, and sometimes even more. So they would come through again and burn it, and this would went on for decades. Finally, in 1985, the Russians are like, forget it, we can't do this. We're just gonna let this place be because it just keeps coming back. Today, it's estimated there's between 900,000 and 1.1 million crosses there. If you Google the Hill of Crosses, you won't believe it. So when we went on the visit, we went to see where our family had placed their crosses. But if you could remember, <laughs> my mom had us walking around for a while. We're like, hey, we know it's here somewhere, but..." The crosses are piled on top of crosses, on top of crosses, on top of crosses, where it's like, holy cow. So my daughter placed the cross, and she placed it on a wooden, and I don't want to say totem, but it's like a totem, but of uh, Jesus. And we took a picture of it, so like, when we come back, we'll know where to look. And what was cool was the irony of the last European 
country to fully embrace Christianity has got such a phenomenal site with such a phenomenal story. I think God's got, uh, well, benevolence and a great sense of humor for sure. And, you know, and I guess he doesn't care how you get there, which is funny. It is funny how it works that way sometimes. And that's exactly how Tom's career would work out too. I always liked sales. I liked talking to people. I liked to help people. And I had a job, this is going back into the mid 80s, but I was selling copiers. That was not fun. And back in those days, you had to lug your own copiers on these gurneys and I probably tore three suits, suit pants, you know. I'm doing demos with my suit coat tight around my, my waist piece so that my back end is not exposed. And I cold called a place that was a headhunter and asked them if they wanted a new copier. They said, no, they asked me if I wanted a new job. And I said, what do you got? <laughs> <laughs> and I got uh, presented to Chicago's first payroll company. Was accepted, an opportunity to start selling and I made rookie of the year, which was exciting. Won a trip to Acapulco. But what I found was dealing with payroll is there's always an answer that at the end of the day, you gotta balance. And there's always an answer, you can find it. Much like accounting, if done properly, you can always find an answer. So there is a sense of settlement and solution. You know, when a lot of businesses don't have, and life in general has so many gray areas that it's nice to sort of dwell in the world of black and white of you're in balance or you're out of balance. And if you're out of balance, let's troubleshoot and so as time went on, I got involved as the liaison to operations from the sales group. And, you know, I liked the idea of getting behind a good product and service, getting other people behind it, maybe a, a, an inclination towards leadership. And so as time went on, then I got an opportunity to buy into uh, a new company, uh, help grow it, sell it, and then got an opportunity to come here. and. When you get into an ownership and a leadership role, you all of a sudden have got so many different dimensions of opportunities to help. So one, I'm so grateful for the chance that I've been given and the opportunities that are made as well as gifted, you know, and hard work will present opportunities for you too. Whereas, hey, if you never went to that, building you never would have met that person that then led to you know I had a client I brought on two employees IT technology firm loved our service and people are like why don't you waste your time with it I'm like it was a referral if somebody is coming to us because of a kind word we're, we're bringing them on well they loved our service so much they told their CPA firm their CPA firm came on with us and brought 30 other clients so this two-man payroll ends up netting 30 companies with over a thousand employees. So you never know where it leads. We had an incredible quarter. We picked up some very large clients, 1,200 employees, 5,000 employees, 600 employees, and all that came to us by way of referral. We bring on over 300 new clients a year and they all come by way of referral. But then the other opportunity in a, in a management or a leadership role is you, you have the opportunity to help people that you work with to grow. To have that opportunity 
to find a person, place, or thing better off than you have met them. A lot of times people, they try to classify services as just commodities. Oh, just, you know, go for the price and all that. And sometimes we'll encounter a client who'll be like, you're only 10% less. And, and the whole focus of the conversation becomes cost. And you're like, okay, let me tell you about our service. Because if it's only cost, you're not going to keep that client very long. Because the next guy that's going to come in and say, oh yeah, I'll cut my price by 30% to save you 10% from these guys, sure, we'll do it. It could be a commodity until you have an error. And when you need service. And now, some of my larger competitors, you're talking to folks overseas. And we all know how that can be. Calling AT&T or Comcast. And I have to tell you, I guess that's okay because a cell phone works similarly in Manila or Mumbai as it does here in the United States. Payroll does not. The United States, which has federal, state, and local jurisdictions, is the most convoluted, laden with minds for an employer to screw up on. I was bringing on a church in uh, New Jersey a couple years ago. Their incumbent was one of the large firms. They were looking at the largest firm and us. And she said, now I have to tell you, your competitors, I've got a 24-hour phone call. I said, yeah, I think after 5 p.m. Eastern time, I said, those calls go overseas. And that's okay as long as the people are trained. Our approach is that when you process your payroll and you review your documentation, which is almost instantaneous, when you're done at 2 p.m., you're done. You shouldn't have any questions. And I said, and if you do, my cell phone's on my business card. Fraser Thomas, he did um, Garfield Goose in the morning and Sunday afternoons he would have family classics, which was, they would show the classic movies. And he would be there in like this library and this classical music would start. And always on a Sunday afternoon when that hit, it reminded me that Monday was coming the next day. I'd be dreading it and like, I got school the next day. So I thought, you know what? When I have my company, I want to look forward to Mondays as much as I look forward to Fridays. So what have I got to do? What, you know, what has got to be there to have people want to come to work? And a lot of it is giving them the opportunity, giving them the room to fail, you know, from a management style, certainly celebrating the victories, correcting the errors and proving and getting better, and just keeping a very upbeat, optimistic outlook as well as environment. And great job as always, Alex. Tom Sadeka's story, an American dreamer's story, here on Our American Stories. And by the way, they're a terrific company. If you need payroll done, we use their service and just the best that can be. Again, Precision Payroll of America is the company. Tom Sadeka's story, here on Our American Stories.
Leslie Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we talk about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports to history and, of course, the sciences. And we read a book review in the Wall Street Journal called It Never Hurts to Ask, and it was all about a book called Why? What Makes Us Curious? And the writer joins us, Professor Mario Livio. He's a professor of astrophysics and adjunct at UNLV, and he worked at the Hubble Telescope for 24 years. And thanks for joining us. Sure, my pleasure. Well, let's talk about astrophysics first. What is it, and why were you curious about that? Because that obviously led to your life's work, sir. Well, astrophysics is really about understanding the universe, and by that I mean from the universe at large, you know, why the universe expands, uh, what is the evolution of the universe, uh, to understanding how galaxies form, how stars form, how planets form, uh, how life emerged in the universe. All of that belongs to astrophysics. And talk about now your, your quest to dig into this space called curiosity, because I think this is what separates man from everybody else, is the degree to which we're curious and what we do about it. Um, right. So talk about that. So, indeed, humans are, are really quite unique in the fact that they ask why, uh, even about unseen causes. Um, animals are curious too, but they don't normally ask why, and especially not about things that they cannot directly see. Um, so uh, I was always a very curious person, uh, and at one point I just became very curious about curiosity itself. So, you know, I decided to spend uh, more than four years uh, studying, you know, what research has been done in psychology and neuroscience about curiosity. Uh, I spoke with many researchers in the field, uh, visited some labs and so on, and uh, that's the result is this book. Are we naturally curious, or is it something we develop? Is there a curiosity gene, to be so blunt? Uh, (laughs) Yes. So we are naturally curious in the sense that studies show that uh, 40 to 50% of uh, this trait of curiosity, as with many other psychological traits, are genetic. Uh, namely, if your parents were very curious, your grandparents were very curious, chances are you'll also be a, a very curious person. So, so some part of it is genetic. But, of course, there, there, is, there are other parts that are, um, you know, just environmental and depending on your particular circumstances. I mean, it depends on your parents and how they, they taught you, your teachers, uh, maybe the church you go to. Um, things of that nature, the environment in which we live, I mean, does that allow you the luxury of being curious about certain things and not about others and so on? Well, curiosity has done a lot for humankind. I mean, you posit that it's kept us alive in many respects. And if, if, if anything, it's expanded our life expectancies and so many other things from the creation of fire, which I think is, you know, we can take it all the way back there. That was curiosity itself, wasn't it? The unseen and the next thing you know, we're creating this thing out of nothing. That's right. So, so curiosity in, indeed drives, of course, all scientific research. Uh, it drives the process of education. It plays a role, you know, in books we write, films we see, and even simple conversations. I mean, you don't want to have a conversation with somebody unless you're somewhat curious about what they have to say. 
Um, and indeed, it goes back all the way to the pre-humans and the very early humans who had to be curious about, you know, what does fire do? You know, how can I use that? Uh, what do tools do? And, and things of that nature that expanded both the diet of the early humans and, uh, you know, the fact that uh, they could start to do all kinds of other things that they couldn't before. Let's talk about the two dimensions of curiosity that you talk about in your book. And one of them has to do with, let's just say, the senses, and the other with the intellect. Um, talk about those two things. So uh, there are various types of curiosity. So one curiosity is, for example, it has been dubbed perceptual curiosity. That's the curiosity we feel when something surprises us or when something that we see doesn't quite agree with what we know or at least think we know. Um, you know, think, for example, you know, of uh, some children in some remote village uh, in, in South America, seeing a white person for the very first time. Things of that type, things that really surprise you. Then there is epistemic curiosity. Epistemic curiosity is the real love of knowledge. It's what drives us to learn things. It's that pleasure, you know, or anticipation of pleasure that coming from new knowledge. And that's uniquely, as, you, as we had said before, that is just uniquely human. That's right. That's a, that's a characteristic that is uniquely human. Now let's talk about some people. Um, let's talk about some curious people, and two that you feature. Well, let's talk about one first, uh, Leonardo da Vinci. Yes. So Leonardo has been uh, called uh, by uh, uh, Kenneth Clark, the art critic, the most relentlessly curious mind in history. And indeed, you know, here is a person, you know, of course we know him from his works of art, the Mona Lisa and all that, but he was really curious about everything. I mean, he has, you know, he has left us with some 7,000 pages of notes, and probably there were maybe double that when he lived. And in, in those, he studies everything from the flow of water to the flight of birds to how do you paint to uh, how long is uh, the tongue of the woodpecker. I mean, he was literally interested in everything around him, except perhaps politics which was a very good thing because he lived at the time of the Borgias and they basically killed anybody who got involved in politics. Indeed, indeed. And, and you know, we had just spent some time with David McCullough not long ago and the curiosity of the Wright brothers was remarkable. I mean, these two guys just kept going at it and they were curious and they tested and they were curious and in their own way they were hobbyists, but they were doing things that, well, Leonardo was thinking about and puzzled over himself. That curiosity drove them too. Right. You're absolutely right. Of course, you, you know, I mean, not all were his ideas. I mean, a, a little bit fewer than the things we think were, you know, there were things that were in the air at the time. But the fact that he was interested in all of those is what makes him so absolutely unique. Indeed, indeed. And, and very few people had that kind of mind and that level and breadth and depth of curiosity. Let's talk about that other person you talk about in the book, Richard Feynman. And by the way, who is he for folks who may not have ever heard his name? Yeah, so Richard Feynman was uh, one of the most uh, celebrated physicists uh, of the 20th century. He worked in almost every area of physics and also a Nobel laureate in physics. Um, but in addition to everything he did in physics, he was interested in so many other things. He was a bongo drummer. Uh, he studied how to draw uh, he was an expert in uh, cracking safes. Uh, he uh, was uh, an expert in Mayan hieroglyphs. 
and, and things like this. So he was, again, a sort of a Leonardo-type person, although more, you know, in the sciences uh, than uh, in the arts. Uh, but, but really a person that found everything interesting. He basically said, everything is interesting if you look into it deeply enough. And you coined a phrase, curiosity is the best remedy for fear. Talk about that. Yes. You see, very often things we're fearful about or afraid of are things that we just don't know much about or we don't understand. And by actually learning more about them and under, trying to understand them better, we actually can get rid of that fear. And, and that's why I, I truly strongly believe in this statement that curiosity is the best remedy for fear. And indeed, uh, you, you sort of intimate that curiosity is better than bravery for overcoming fear. Yes. Uh, cu curiosity uh, very often will drive people to do uh, more risky things than, you know, uh, you just associate with brave people. Right. I think brave people in in intimates risk and risk-taking and uh, curiosity. Well, you just got to follow it down. When we come back, we're going to continue our conversation. The book, Why, What Makes Us Curious, and we're curious about this book. We continue our conversation with Professor Mario Livio after these commercial messages. And this is Our American Stories, and we return with Professor Mario Livio, an adjunct professor at UNLV. He worked with Hubble Telescope for 24 years, and he's an astrophysicist. And we continue our conversation on his new book, Why? What Makes Us Curious? We read a terrific Wall Street Journal review, and we just had to dig in and get the book. Let's dig into some of the deeper things about this book and some of the depth here. Isn't the beginning of learning admitting you don't know something? Oh, yes. Uh, that actually, you know, marked the, the change from the Middle Ages into, you know, Renaissance and eventually into what we call the Enlightenment. I mean, what happened in the Middle Ages is that various entities uh, and regimes basically tried to convince the people that they know everything or they know everything that needs to be known. And it is really that change where in the Enlightenment, when suddenly people said, wait a second, actually, we almost don't know anything, everything we have to learn. That is really what caused, you know, all this enormous change and then the beginning of modern science, modern arts and all that. And talk about the Enlightenment, if you can, because there were many challenges to many institutions because of the Enlightenment. And in the end, curiosity can be dangerous to regimes. You're right. Uh, 
you see various oppressive regimes uh, find it, I think, more convenient for people to be less curious and ask fewer questions. And, you know, you might think that this is something that, oh, well, maybe, you know, in the Middle Ages and things like this. Uh, but you see this today. I mean, you, you know, you have regimes, you know, such as the Taliban, uh, who, you know, they destroyed these Buddhas of Bamiyan, these enormous, you know, 100 feet statues that existed, you know, since the 6th century. Or, you know, they shot in the head that young Pakistani girl, you know, Malala Yousafzai, uh, because she advocated education for young girls. Uh, so you see, even today, you know, these attempts to suppress curiosity. And, and the, the move to enlightenment is really when you realize that you should let uh, your curiosity be free. Well, and I think that that gets to the larger point. Curiosity is power in the end. And, and power generally feels threatened by curiosity. You're right. I mean, at least there are such, such powers that feel threatened by curiosity because it's sometimes easier to, um, you, you know, especially when, when for, for oppressive regimes, you know, it's easier to control people when they don't, don't know things rather than, you know, going the other way and for the regime to become more enlightened. Indeed. And I think the second you start to ask even why of a government, and that becomes a dangerous question, even that kind of curiosity uh, wants to be suppressed by certain types of dictatorships, and we've learned this throughout history. What happens when you when you deny people their curiosity? In the end, the regimes suffer. It's not even in their interest, is it, to suppress the curiosity of your own people? In the long term, of course, it isn't. I mean, because those those kind of societies, they at the end, you know, they lag behind in terms of uh, development, in terms of, uh, you know, science, in terms of uh, developing uh, the humanities, the arts, and all that. I mean, it's remarkable what's happened because of curiosity. Uh, let's talk about some of the technology today. Do you think in the end that the Facebook, the Googles, uh, artificial intelligence are going to benefit curiosity, hinder, or is it a mixed bag? Well, I think it is somewhat a mixed bag, but I think that overall it's a good thing, and I'll, I'll tell you why. One type of curiosity, which is called specific curiosity, which is, you know, when you need to know a very particular thing, like uh, what was the name of the actor in that movie or something like that, uh, that actually, you know, um, the availability of information at our fingertips literally, you know, can satisfy that very quickly. I mean, you know, once you maybe had to struggle for hours to try to remember that name, now you can Google it right away and find it. So that type of curiosity indeed is kind of hindered a little bit in some sense by, by the availability of these tools. But at the other, on the other hand, the important things really are helped by all the, the availability of these, uh, you know, digital tools. Because remember, you know, for example, questions that science asks, new questions that you want to research, I mean, those are questions to which you don't know the answers. So you are not going to find the answers on the Internet. So all you are going to find on the Internet is to find information that maybe will help you to investigate this further. So in that respect, I find, for example, that the Internet really enhances my curiosity because I can satisfy the simple things relatively fast, but then, you know, that allows me to find more information to dig deeper. It also allows people on platforms to connect and question each other and 
ta- talk to each other in ways never before imagined, Professor. You're exactly right. I mean, you know, I mean, in, at the time of Leonardo and so on, I mean, everything, you know, was communicated by, by, by writing letters. And even those letters, uh, you know, were, were done on paper, which was not cheap uh, and so on. And it took forever, you know, to get to where it needed to be. So you're right. I mean, the communication is so much faster. So uh, the passage of information is so much faster. Uh, the storage of information is, of course, completely different and all that. So uh, that, that, at the end, those are the types of things that help curiosity. How do we cultivate, for the folks listening, we have uh, over a million people listening to our show now, uh, and I'm sure they're, they're wondering, I have kids, even for myself, how do I cultivate this thing called curiosity? Can I cultivate it? Yes, it can be cultivated. And, you know, I, I would not claim to be an expert on this, but let me suggest a few things. Uh, one thing is, of course, to ask many questions. And, of course, the other thing is that they ask many questions. The kids tend to ask many questions. Try not to answer the questions immediately, but try to answer them in the following way. You know, they ask you, why that and that and that? So you try to answer, well, why do you think it's that? And then the kid would say something. And then you would say, okay, so let's test that. If that is the correct answer, then it also means that that and that, and so on. And that's how you you know, drive epistemic curiosity. Another thing that is very, very important, in my opinion, is that you should always start with something the child is already curious about. For, for example, you know, most young children are interested in dinosaurs. So start science lessons with dinosaurs because they're already curious about those. And from that, you can then lead to other things, you know, you think they should know. You know, for example, you want to teach them about free-fall acceleration on Earth, okay? They may be bored by that. But you talk to them about dinosaurs, and then you say, well, dinosaurs actually became extinct. And you know why? Because an asteroid hit Earth and, you know, killed all the dinosaurs. Uh, You know why the asteroid hit Earth? Because it had accelerated towards the Earth because of the Earth's gravity. So you started with something they were curious about, and you led them to something that you wanted them to know. You know, and it's interesting because you're digging into something I think about a lot, and that is where the science, the sciences and story combine and converge is in large measure what you're doing is telling the kids a scientific story, and it's through questions and answers and this process that you're driving their curiosity. But my goodness, look at how the story plays a part. And the idea of story plays a part. What, how important is story to curiosity? Oh, story is extremely important. I mean, you, you, would, you know, people like stories. People love storytelling. Uh, I actually start, I started the book with a very short story by, by this American author, Kate Chopin, which is called The Story of an Hour. Uh, and, and the reason I started it with that is because I was so impressed with her ability to create curiosity with almost every sentence. You know, almost every sentence ends with some sort of an intellectual cliffhanger, and you want to read the next sentence. And that's a powerful thing, and we should keep that all in mind. One thing that surprised you as we leave this interview, what's the one thing that surprised you in your research, Professor? Uh, There were a number of things that surprised me. I mean, for example, that difference between perceptual and epistemic curiosity, the Curiosity we feel when we're surprised and curiosity we feel when, you know, we really love to learn. Uh, I didn't realize that those 
you know, actually activated different parts of our brain and were associated in one case with an unpleasant state, in the other with a pleasant state. That surprised me. Another thing that it's amazed me, actually, was that, you know, I thought that curiosity is such an important topic that, you know, lots of neuroscientists and psychologists would be working on that. And I was surprised to actually see how, you know, a relatively small number of people are working on that. Of course, you know, consciousness is such a big thing, and curiosity is just a part of it, and so neuroscientists are working on many other things. But I was still surprised that relatively not more people are, are working on curiosity specifically. Well, we're happy you did. The book is Why, What Makes Us Curious. The author, Professor Mario Livio, and he's a professor of astrophysics and adjunct at the University of Nevada at Las Vegas, and he also worked with Hubble Telescope for 24 years. Thanks so much for joining us, Professor. Thank you for having me.